back in 2005, 2006 to 2009. And uh, it was our joy and privilege to be sent out of here. We were the, us and the Perrys and the Tuckers that went down to uh, Tampa. We were the first of the church plants here on the domestic side of things out of North Wake Church. And um, I'm thankful for all that you have done for us, the way that you've prayed for us, supported us. And, uh, and if you're here this morning as a first-time guest, let me, for, or second-time guest, let me just say a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. And uh, I like to say when I go and preach in other churches that if, um, uh, if you think the preaching is good, it'll only get better. Uh, if the, you think the preaching is bad, it'll only get better. So next week, so come back next week. And uh, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to get involved in a small group somewhere. Um, that's the way that my wife and I got connected into the life of this church and we got to develop relationships that still continue to this day. And so if you're wondering what this church is like, I can tell you three things about them. One, they're broken people. They're messed up people, just like me. Um, but two, the other thing I can tell you about them is, is that they, their hope is in Christ, it's not in themselves. And the third thing I would tell you about them is they would be glad to have you uh, ask them about that hope and speak to it. So I hope that you'll come back and get involved in the life of this church. Uh, and for you, North Wake Church family, Restoration Church is doing well by the grace of God. Uh, she continues on and she grows by the amazing grace of God. Uh, we find sort of a fun fact about Restoration Church. Uh, of our 130 plus members, there's uh, I think over 20 different languages spoken fluently. Uh, that's just Washington, D.C. We're glad to pastor there and you should know you guys are always planting churches around the nation, uh, but uh, you should know that uh, you're going to be a grandparent again uh, because our church, by the grace of God, is pregnant with a Hispanic baby. So we're very excited about it. Uh, and so right there in the middle of the city, is a Spanish speaking, uh, Spanish speaker and there's, we don't, we can't identify any Spanish speaking churches that are preaching the gospel, believing the Bible, spreading the gospel there in the middle of the city, can't identify any. And so Alejandro Malero, who was actually here this morning to my surprise, I don't know how that happened. Um, he's not here now, but um, he will be, he and his family will be planning a church right there in the middle of the city of Washington DC. So be in prayer for him as we try to, to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ amongst not only our own people, but also the Spanish speakers. But again, I just want to say, along with the Apostle Paul to you, uh, that I thank my God every time I remember you, North Wake Church. So you're so special to us, and we'll hope that if you come to DC, please come and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Uh, and one of the ways that I'm going to serve you and thank you is by feeding you a good meal, hopefully. Uh, and I'm a terrible cook, but I know where to find some really good meat. And that is in the book of Hebrews, which you have been studying now for a few months. So go ahead and turn there to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, and I realized this morning that I was supposed to preach down to chapter 4. You're going to get down to chapter, or sorry, verse 4, but you're going to get down to verse 3. I hope that's okay. Uh, let me read this and then I'll pray for us. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So how do we run this race? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Well, for what purpose? 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, as we consider Christ, I pray, God, that we would look firmly upon him, be changed by him, that we would also look to the joy that is set before us, that we might endure, giving great glory to you. Be near us, God, we pray in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage, we have the opportunity to do something that we don't get to do very often in preaching, and that is obey the passage as it is being preached. So take a look down there in verse three. It says to consider him, to consider Christ. And that's exactly what we're gonna do in our time this morning. Two points this morning. I wanna help us think through these ideas. Two points. First one is to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, of our faith. And the second one, to look to the joy that is set before you. So first off there, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Now the first word in the passage there in verse one is therefore. So I like to teach my congregation, there's a reason that word is therefore. So in what it's doing is it's making some conclusions out. It's giving us some transition out of chapter 11 into chapter 12. And so based off of what you guys have been learning for the last uh, month or so in, or the last couple weeks in chapter 11, we're now going to begin to make some conclusions here in chapter 12. And so what you should know is, is those great cloud of witnesses that you read about there in verse one, those are not a cloud of witnesses that serve as a kind of audience to the stage of your life. That's not what's meant there. What, what is meant is that those great cloud of witnesses are an example by which we can learn from and emulate their faith, to trust, trust their faith, that their faith would be our faith. And I do want to emphasize the fact that it should be our faith. Did you notice in the passage as I read it that there's a corporate nature to this passage, that there's a corporate nature to the Christian faith. Do you see that there? Let me read it for you again. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so the Christian life, friends, was never meant to be lived alone. I love that image that we heard last week from Josh Reed when he talked about how his, uh, his son came along, his, uh, his son came along his sister Molly on that last lap to help her finish the race. So that's the image that is supposed to be us in Christianity. Not just when things are hard, but throughout all of life. Throughout all of life, we, we help each other as Christians, helping each other along to our heavenly home. Reminding one another, as Ben uh, Merkel said, I think a few weeks ago, or as Journey sang in the 70s, right? Don't stop what? Believing, right? We help each other in that way. And so Christianity in that way is an us as much or more as it is an I. It's an us. It's a people, which is why church is so important. But uh, to help us believe in faith which is what this passage is talking about. It's coming out of faith we saw back in chapter 11, verse one, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we're getting some conclusions here in verse chapter 12 to help us understand what that faith looks like. The verse then goes on to encourage us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and to run the race that is set before us. So this is really important to understand. We have to set aside the sin 
that is like a weight that clings closely to us and weighs us down in the Christian life. We have to set that sin off. We have to set it aside and note that it is close, right? It keeps us, sin keeps us from the greater prize of the joy that is set before us. So it's important that you understand that. Don't lose sight of that, beloved. We have to understand that sin, as it is often taught to us, it, sin is told to us by the evil one that it is the joy. But we find in this passage, sin is not joy. The joy is set before us. We set aside sin in order to get to the true joy of life with Christ forever. And so if you, friend, are entrenched in sin in some way, might I encourage you to set that sin aside. Turn away from it, get rid of it, set it aside, drag it into the light that it might die and turn to something that is so much better. Take a look at the passage. Turn to something better. This is where the author, I think, is trying to carry us as he's been carrying us through this entire letter in Hebrews. Take a look in verse two, what comes next. We get this exhortation. Some would say a command. How is it we're going to endure? Verse two, looking to Jesus looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so looking to Jesus, beloved, is the fuel for endurance. That's what we see here. We lay aside our sin and we look to Jesus. That's the whole of the Christian life. When we think about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it tells us that the God of this world is blinding the minds of unbelievers to see the gospel of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, so they don't want them to see it. He then goes on two verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 to say that God has shown in our hearts, in the church's hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the, in the, in the face of the glory of Christ. So Christianity is looking to Jesus, beholding Christ and being transformed by him. So look to Jesus, church. Look to Jesus. He, he is the founder of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. We are not the founders of our faith. We are not the perfecters of our faith precisely because we are not the goal of our faith, right? We are not the goal of our faith. The goal of our faith is to see and to enjoy the one that purchased and is perfecting our faith, the king of glory, Christ the Lord. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you have some questions about the Christian faith. First off, I'm glad that you're here. I hope that you'll come back. But secondly, I wonder if you've ever thought about Christianity or the gospel in this way. Maybe you have always thought that Christianity or the gospel was kind of doing a lot of stuff or maybe not doing a lot of stuff. And maybe if you do enough stuff, that makes you a Christian. That's not the way that it works. Christianity is, at the end of the day, seeing, beholding Christ and finding him more beautiful than anything else and growing up into him day after day. And so if you think that one of the reasons you don't want to become a Christian is because it's a bore or because it's super frustrating. Well, that's probably because you see Christianity as a kind of hobby. And guess what? Christianity is a terrible hobby, right? Don't think of it that way. But it's a glorious reward if you see Christ as the King of Kings. Think of Christianity that way. And so I wonder, do you see Christ? Even you, brother, sister, do you see Christ? To behold Christ. That seems to be what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us throughout this book. We cannot, we cannot found our faith. We cannot perfect our faith. Faith is looking to the one that can do those things. Right? So an old saint, Ignatius, once said, love this quote, write this down if you're a note taker. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. 
apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. That's important to understand, friends, because whatever dazzles you the most is what directs you the most. Whatever dazzles you the most is what directs you the most. And here we see that looking to Jesus is the way of endurance. And the reason for that is because he and he alone is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Isn't that what it says? So one of the agendas of the book of Hebrews is to warn people against straying from Christ. And the author here knows that there are a thousand things that can dazzle us or lead us away from Christ. And sometimes those are good things that can lead us away. Sometimes we can be dazzled by even good things that would lead us away from Christ. I think about this in my own life. You know, as as a pastor, I look at my church and I can sometimes let my joy be dictated by how the church is going. That's a terrible master, right? It's a terrible master. I don't know what it would be for you. What are the kinds of things in your life that might cause you to be dazzled? And so therefore your joy is kind of dictated by those things and how those things are going instead of, who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ will do. What is it that dazzles you? Well, the author here wants us to know that we must be dazzled by Christ so that we may endure. That's what he's been doing throughout the whole book, right? If you've been along for the ride through Hebrews, you've been seeing the greatness of the glory of Christ. Let me just give you an example of this, of what you have seen in Hebrews just skipping a rock across the book. It says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We find that he made purification for our sins, that he is the son of the living God, that he is the recipient of the worship of angels, that his throne is forever and ever. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He has been anointed with oil of gladness and he is the same yesterday, today and forever and his years have no end. And that folks is just chapter one. He's great. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. We fix our gaze upon the king because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Abraham is not, Moses is not, right? David is not, Tim Keller is not, Larry Trotter is not, Sam Williams is not, Nathan is not, you're not, Christ is. He is, he is. He founded our faith on the cross. He purchased it there by his sacrifice for sin. He did something that none of us could do. He substituted his life for us that believe, paying the penalty for our sin, purchasing it, ransoming it for us. And that's in the way in which it was founded. And then the way in which it's being made new or perfected is through his resurrection as his life was born again on the third day. So, and then he ascended and sends the spirit down to those of us that believe from the inside out, the spirit is cleaning us up by his grace and for his glory. In this way, Christ is the founder and perfecter of the faith as we see in the gospel. Now maybe you're asking the question, well, if Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith, do we not have a role? Well, of course you do, beloved. Of course you have a role. But you must understand those roles, those activities are nothing more than places to gaze upon Jesus. Whereupon we look at him and trust him to perfect us, to change us from the inside out. And this is, of course, is one of the great, glorious, wonderful ideas of the Christian faith. It's so liberating, isn't it? To know that our hope is not in ourselves to change us, but it's in Christ to change us. By his grace, 
for his glory. And so I wonder, are there some of you here this morning that are tired in the Christian life, that are weary of trying to run? Maybe some of you feel as though your hold of Christ is paper thin. Well, let me read to you a passage that describes the one who's holding you. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 to 31 says this. This is the one that is the author and perfecter of our faith. Here's what it says. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Listen. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord, or we could say those that look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, they, he shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, church, look to Jesus. Look to him. He alone is the founder and perfecter of our faith. On our own and in our own power, in our own strength, we cannot endure but by looking to him, by trusting him, holding fast to him, we can endure as he gives strength to us. See, don't you know, beloved, don't you know that it's not your hold of him that counts, but it's his hold of you. And he's never lost a single one. This is so wonderful for us to think about. We cannot do this on our own. We know that, but we don't know that, right? We forget that a thousand times a day. But there's one that we must be reminded of as Hebrews gives to us, that we must look to Christ. And there's another man that I think helps us think about this idea of looking to Christ. His name is Isaac Ambrose. Ambrose, He lived in the 1600s. He wrote a 700-page book on this one verse. How about that? 700, I have not read it all, just to be clear. Uh, But listen what he says about what it means to look to Christ that we might find strength in him. This is what he says. He says, only Christ is the whole of man's happiness. The sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressures. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so the sight transcends, this sight transcends all other sights. It is the epitome of a Christian's happiness, the quintessence of evangelical duties, looking to Jesus. Don't you wanna learn to look to Jesus like that? Don't trust yourself to perform the faith. Trust Christ to perfect it on your behalf as you take hold of him every day. See him and savor him in all that you do. See him on every page of scripture that you read. See his handiwork, Christ's handiwork in nature. See him in someone's service to you. See Christ in your service to someone else. See him in every song that you sing and every sermon that you hear. And the more that you do that, the more confident you can be that you will endure and not burn out. Just to give you an example of this, of the differences between those that try to perfect or found their faith on their own and those that see Jesus let me give you an example of that, of that sort of paradox of the two or contradictory of the two. There's a friend that I have in D.C. whose name is, we'll call him Sam. Sam is from the Middle East. Sam is a practicing Muslim. He's a good friend of mine. He's been in my home numerous times. He and his wife and his kids 
Uh, we've gone to uh, playgrounds together with our kids. We've had numerous uh, times together over meals and coffee. Uh, Osama, or sorry, or Sam has even told, uh, I took him one time to a baseball game uh, to watch a Nationals game. And that was the time in which I realized baseball is an incredibly complicating game. Uh, I remember I told him, he said, I told him there's all right, four balls, three strikes. And then a the guy, there's a three balls, two strikes. A guy fouls the ball off. All right, what happened there? I said, well, that's a strike. Okay, so he strikes out. Well, no, you can foul a ball off on two strikes and you can keep going. And there's a guy, then he stole a base. What happened there? Well, a guy stole it. You can steal in this game? Anyway, it was very complicating. But Sam, he bore it with me. We, we walked through it all. We had many conversations. And one of the conversations we had, we were having coffee, Sam and I, and we were sitting across the table from one another. And that week, I was preaching on 1 John 4, where it says there, God is love. And so I wanted to see what Sam would say about what Islam teaches about, his, about this idea that God is love. And no surprise, he didn't have much to say about that. He wanted to emphasize that God is merciful, but he didn't have much to say about God is love, which is sad, but revealing, I think, about their faith, because they have to perform it. So Sam would understand that he doesn't need Jesus because he is the one that is by his obedience is sort of paying off his sins. And hopefully if he sort of gets 51% right over the course of his life, God will be merciful to him and sort of make up for the lost ground. And of course it makes a lot of sense why a God would not be said to be love that makes up a religion like that. And so in an effort to try and help Sam understand the differences between the gospel and what he believes, I gave him a story just to illustrate this point and ask him a question at the conclusion of it. So I told him he has two sons who he loves. He's a good dad. And I said to him, I said, Sam, if you told your sons to clean up their room, which would be the better motivator? If you were to tell them that clean up your room, do it, do it often enough, frequent enough, and good enough, and if you do, I'll let you stay here and keep eating here and I'll let you stay in my house. But if you do it poorly enough, if you don't do it often enough, I'm kicking you out of my house. There's one motivator. Or the other motivator is, I love you, sons. I care for you. I, I, I work for you. I feed you. I give you a home. I give you clothes. I love you. And as a result of that, would you clean your room? Now, the second I said that, he knew he was in a bit of a quandary because he understood what was going on there. He understood that if he said the other one, that that would not be the way in which he actually functionally motivates his children. But he also knew that was what his faith taught him. And it was at that point we then began to speak about the grace of the gospel. How the God of the gospel says this. 1 John chapter 4, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That's grace. And that is such a wonderful motivator to do life out of love for God because he first loved us. Not that we try to perform it good enough, otherwise he kicks us out of his house. No, he loved us enough to send us his son. Isn't that a better motivator, Sam? And he didn't trust Christ, but I'm still hopeful that he will. I wonder if you have understood the Christian faith in that way. That maybe you thought that if you sort of can do enough stuff, maybe you even came to church this morning for that reason. I need to come to church because if I do, God will love me a little bit more and then he'll save me when I die. 
That's not the gospel, friend. I've got such a better story for you. And it's exactly what I just quoted there in 1 John 4, is what we're seeing here in Hebrews chapter 12. Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are not. We can agree that we're a mess, but Christ is good. And he is our hope to change us, to found us, to perfect us to the end. This is such good news. And so you can stop looking to yourself to try to earn the love of Christ. God in Christ, for those that believe, has already, he's loved you perfectly and he will always love you forever and ever. See him in the Bible, wonder at him, pray to him, speak of his mercy, share him with others, own the messiness of your life and say, my hope is not in myself, it's in him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And the light of his glory and grace. And so if we are going to endure as a people, as a church, we must lay aside our sin together. Look to Jesus to be the founder and perfecter of our faith by his grace and for his glory. But secondly, we must look to the joy that is set before us. We must look to the joy that is set before us. Look back there in the passage, Hebrews 12, after exhorting us to look to Jesus, the author then moves into a particular aspect of Jesus to more specifically instruct us on how to not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, then notice he zooms in, who for the joy that was set before him, that's out in front of him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He then hammers the point in verse three by saying again, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Three times in this passage, three times he uses the word endured. Do you want to endure brother, sister? Consider Jesus, look to Jesus. Look to him to not only Uh, find strength, but also look to his example to know how you can endure, namely of seeing the joy that was set in front of you or more particularly the joy that was set in front of him. See friends, if you see there, what the author is telling us is the thing that got Jesus through the pain and suffering of the cross was his focus on the praise and the splendor and glory that was on the other side of the cross. That was it. And that, Hebrews tells us, is the example that we must learn from. Focus on the joy that is set before you, out in front of you, beloved, on the other side of that difficulty. In other words, if you can say it in a phrase, hope in heaven. Hope in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something I typically do. Hoping in heaven. When I am most tempted to dismay, I am most aware of my present circumstances. Or maybe past circumstances. Something that happened to me or something I did. And I'm more aware of those things and I'm more oriented by those things. And as a result, I am prone to dismay. Those things tend to take my focus away from looking to Jesus. I then cling to the sin that so easily entangles me because I am so focused on my residency here on earth. And those things are real to be sure. But what happens is I lose endurance in the Christian faith because two things are not happening. One, I'm not looking to Jesus, I'm looking to myself. And secondly, I'm also not looking to where my citizenship lies. I'm looking to the country of my sojourn, my 
exile here on earth. I'm more oriented to me and my present circumstances. And void in my heart and mind is the sight of the glory of Christ and the forever home that I have with him. And friends, that's a recipe for despair and faint heartedness. We must, listen, we must, we must look to the grace of Christ to strengthen us and we must look to the joy that is set before us in order to give us hope and endurance. Jesus endured because he focused on the joy set before him. And what is that joy? Well, that joy was and is the joy of the everlasting jurisdiction of his and the new heavens and new earth. That's what's being referred to there in verse two when it talks about how he is seated at the right hand of God. So he's there, he will soon return and bring that to bear on the new heavens and new earth. And so friends, Jesus was able to endure Calvary because he never lost sight of glory. He could suffer on Friday because he knew that he would rise on Sunday. He could endure the darkness because he knew that eternal light was coming. He could take the cross because he knew that he would receive a crown. How's your hope in heaven, Christian? How's that going? The author of Hebrews is telling us that the way that we will endure is by gazing long and hard at the joy that is set before us, not just trying to white knuckle it through today. And so have you taken the time to read and to consider what God has told you about where your citizenship lies? Have you done that? Have you taken the time to hope in heaven and familiarize that place of where you're going to go forever and ever? Last summer, my family and I were... um, getting ready to take the American pilgrimage to the magic kingdom. Y'all know the magic kingdom, right? And I had to inform my boys time and again, this is the magic kingdom, there is the kingdom of heaven and the two are not the same thing. And so in advance of that magic kingdom endeavor, we investigated the rides, we investigated the food that we eat, the place that we would stay. We thought about all the things that we would be able to do And the more that we thought about those things, what happened? The more that we got excited, right? And there would be things coming up, leading up to the trip at which we would be discouraged, tend towards discourse. It was bad news, whatever the case may be. But we said to ourselves, hey, but next week, we're going to be in Disney World. It's going to be all right. But I wonder, where's that at in our lives as Christians? I mean, that's, that's Disney World, Right? Walt Disney, friends, has nothing on the king of kings and his consummated kingdom. Nothing. It is so much better than Disney World. Where is this at in our lives as Christians? Why are we not familiarizing ourselves with the enjoyment of the king and his everlasting kingdom? He goes to prepare a place for us. Isn't that what he said? What do you think that place is like? Oh, it must be so good. Have you taken the time to consider what those communities would be like? Don't you think that your enjoyment of the king and his consummated kingdom might inform and strengthen your hope as you walk through your own valley of the shadow of death? What might it do for you, brother or sister, if you knew that on the other side of the valley that the Lord had a meal prepared for you in the presence of your enemies? What would it do for you if you knew that even in that valley, that goodness and mercy were going to follow you all the days of your life and that you were going to dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his glory forever and ever and ever. What would it do for you as you walk through that valley? 
See, can't you see why Hebrews employs the example of the Lord through suffering? Jesus knew that glory was on the other side of Golgotha. And so it is for us who are in Christ. Heaven is on the other side of this present darkness. And so, beloved, give yourselves to investigating the communities of heaven. Go to passages like Isaiah 65 and consider this. Give yourself to understanding that passages so that you might know what it is to have streams in the desert. That the wilderness and the dry land would become glad. That the wolf and the lamb would lie down together. That the ransom of the Lord returned to Zion with singing. Let your imaginations be formed by these things so that you will have a more compelling vision in this world because you're hoping in the one to come. Do that, brothers and sisters, and you will endure. Do it not, and you will grow weary and faint-hearted. See, friends, Paul tells us in Colossians to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Set your minds more and more on Canaan, that happy land that we have been granted a passport to because Christ has authored us and is perfecting us. Consider that place where God's people will no longer deride us but only encourage us. Consider that place where God's people will no longer hinder our love for Christ but always strengthen it. That place where cancer, death, disease are but a memory and everlasting life and the light of Christ is our meditation all of the day. How much, Christian, are you giving yourself to thinking about the joy that is set before you? The degree to which you do may just mark the degree to which you find strength for today. How often do you meditate on the hope of heaven? How often do you pray the hope of heaven? How often do you counsel heaven, disciple heaven, evangelize heaven? A few years ago, our church was working through the book of Colossians and I was struck by the construction of Colossians 1, 3 to 5. If you go back and you can see it there and what it says there is interesting. Paul thanks God for the Colossians' faith in Christ, their love for all the saints because of their hope in heaven. Now, to me, that's not the way I would have written that verse. I would have said something like, I thank God for you, Colossians, because of your love for all the saints, your hope in heaven, because of your faith in Christ. But that's not what Paul wrote. Paul thought that the hope of heaven was so foundational to the church in Colossae that he thought it wise to ground such things and thanksgiving in such things. And I began to ask myself the question that week as I looked at that passage. How much do I do this? How much do I hope in heaven? How much do I consider the joy that is set in front of me? And I found that I didn't do it much. I didn't think about it much. I didn't read many books. I'm always reading, but I don't read many books on heaven. I'm not counseling much on heaven. I'm not hoping much in heaven at all. And then I had, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 appointments that week. And at the end of the uh, meeting, I would typically ask them, so do you do this? Do you ever hope in heaven? Do you think about it when you pray? Do you talk about this much? And virtually every single one of them said no. I then said, well, gosh, this is odd. So then I called some of my pastor buddies, asked them the same thing. Do you preach heaven? Do you sing heaven a lot? And their answer, most of them was, not really. I then began to kind of re- remind myself of the membership discussions we have in advance of bringing people into membership. And one of the things we ask them to do is to rehearse the gospel. And so what I have found is, is oftentimes Jesus leaves people in the grave. Or sorry, Jesus doesn't leave people in the grave. I got that wrong. People leave Jesus in the grave. Big miss. 
Don't get that wrong like I did. In other words, what they would do is they would say, I'd ask them what the gospel was, how someone gets saved. And they would say, well, my Jesus lived. He died my death on the cross for my sin. And I would say, that's great. Now, here's the trick. I can't give them the answer, right? So I'm like, anything else happen? You know? And they would say, oftentimes, these are the first two words that come out of their mouth. Oh, yeah. And he rose from the grave three days later. At which time I begin thinking, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. First Corinthians 15 says, if he does not raise from the grave, our faith is futile. If we're not thinking much about the resurrection, how much are we thinking about heaven? I mean, you go read the book of Acts. They talk about the resurrection almost every page. So after taking a lot of time to evaluate my ministry and those around me, I began to notice what seemed to be as though we were missing this massive rock in the Christian faith, this joy set before us. Randy Alcorn talks about this in his book on heaven at the very beginning when he noted how few books were actually written on heaven. And ever since then, I started to notice the hope of heaven in the life of Christians in the Bible so often. It was sort of like Jesus in the Old Testament. It just keeps popping up everywhere. And so just recently we finished the book of Isaiah. And now it seems to me when, I, when we read Isaiah, he's talking about judgment and he would always come right after that and talk about this hope that was going to come. And oftentimes it was in heaven. That's the hope that Isaiah was calling Jerusalem that was surrounded by their enemies too. That's the hope that Jesus talked about in the kingdom of heaven. How often did he talk about the kingdom of heaven? That's the hope that Paul read about time and again to a beleaguered church that was pressed in on every side. That's what Peter talked about when he said that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in where? Heaven for you. We know about the great cloud of witnesses. That's what they're looking to. And of course, we know about John in the book of Revelation who's meditating on heaven. The joy of Jesus and the joy of Jesus' kingdom and the new heavens and new earth, all of that, beloved, is out in front of us and it cannot be taken away. It's the final chapter, the consummation of history. The water to the thirsty soul. If we lose that, guys, we lose everything. We lose it all. And the author of Hebrews knows that. That's why he's calling us to endure by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and also to the joy that is set out in front of us, despising the shame that may come to us here, because we know that glory is coming to us there. Right? Restoration Church sings this song from time to time. It's one of my favorite songs that we sing. It's called Happy Land. I would encourage Daniel you to sing this song. You may already do. I love this song. It says, there is a happy land far, far away where saints in glory stand bright, bright as day. (laughs) Oh, how they sweetly sing. Worthy is our Savior King. Loud let his praises ring, praise evermore. I love that song. Helps orient me to where we're going to go. There's only one thing about that song that I don't like. And that is when it says far, far away. Because the reality is, friends, it's quite near. He could return by the end of this service. It's about a twinkling of the eye away Christ's return is. And as soon as he appears, oh, happy day. We will be like him. 
And we will see him of whom our soul desires. And we will spend eternity with him and with one another forever and ever with no tear. And all those difficulties of which we face today will fade in the light of his glory and his grace. The key we find in Hebrews that tells us how in which we're not going to fade or grow weary or faint-hearted is by looking to Jesus to found us, to define us and perfect us and to look to the joy that is set before us. And beloved, it will be here soon enough. Rejoice, keep your eyes on him and one another and we will be home soon. Let's pray. Oh God.